I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, advancements in medical science have made the question of when human life begins much simpler to define. As a scientist, the way we think about an individual in life is based upon measurable things, chemical reactions or a physiological process or growth. So it finds like a plant is alive and a rock is not alive. But for religious scholars and philosophers, the relationship of life to personhood and how we define it is a thornier issue. Is a fetus a person? Is a patient in a persistent vegetative state a person? What about my dog or another intelligent animal, say a rat or a crow? And there have been recent debates about whether certain kinds of artificially intelligent robots qualify as persons. The science of when life begins and the question of personhood, that's coming up on Life Examined. When it comes to understanding life, science provides us with a relatively clear definition. Organisms have the capacity to grow, metabolize, respond to stimuli, adapt, and reproduce. Plants, animals, and humans have similar characteristics, and rocks, for example, do not. As medical technology advances, a tougher question remains. How do our own views on human life and also death shift and evolve? Defining what life is and what life means is both challenging and controversial. At what point is a living human embryo a person, and at what point does a person depart the human body? When it comes to understanding life, are we guided by science or by religion, philosophy, and politics? To help me navigate some of these long-standing and controversial questions, I'm joined by two specialists in their fields— We'll begin with Amanda Clark, a geneticist from UCLA, and later hear from Samira Mehta, Associate Professor of Women and Gender Studies at the University of Colorado in Boulder. First, let's start with the science. Amanda Clark is Professor of Molecular, Cell, and Developmental Biology at the University of California, Los Angeles, and she joins us now. Professor, welcome. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I want to open this conversation with, I think, just what we know about the latest in scientific research around the beginning of life. This is obviously a very controversial topic, but I think that, uh, you know, science maybe has some answers to give us here. And I, I wonder what you see as a leader and somebody who looks at stem cell technology. Um, what would you say when I ask, where does life begin? What comes up for you? I think that's a very interesting and complicated question. And sometimes the answer to this depends on the type of scientist that you're talking to. So if you spoke to an evolutionary biologist and asked, when does life begin? They would say 4.7 billion years ago, that's when life began. So, so I think that, so I think talking to scientists and different types of scientists is, is really interesting and you can get a lot of interesting perspectives. Um, so, so as you said, I'm a stem cell scientist and I study early human embryo development. And uh, as a geneticist, I would say that life begins at the point of fertilization, which is uh, in the body. This would occur uh, in the fallopian tubes uh, where the sperm fertilizes the egg. And then a pregnancy would be established when the uh, fertilized egg, which at this point is called a blastocyst, implants into the wall of a uterus. Uh, and so that's the geneticist point of view of how, um, when life when life begins. Mm. And at that very early phase, what do we know about uh, the, the kind of, the sentience, if that's even the right word here, of an embryo? I mean, is, is this at all a conscious being or really a cluster of cells? What What is it? Yeah, so um, so so a scientist, a geneticist, would not think about the fertilized egg as being sentient. Uh, instead, the the way a geneticist would think about this is that a sperm has twenty three chromosomes and an egg has twenty three chromosomes. Uh, that's called haploid state. Mm. And at fertilization, the chromosomes uh, will come together in a single celled embryo called a zygote. Uh, so that it has 46 chromosomes. So, so a geneticist thinks about this from the point of view of DNA and chromosomes, not sentience. Mm. So perhaps this is a lot different than the idea of, of kind of personhood or the sense of a being or of how we think of, of a human in a sense. I mean, how do we parse through some of that language to make sense of what life is? 
Yeah, these are really terrific questions. I can also tell you that um, as a geneticist, uh, my um, science tells me that life begins at fertilization. Uh, however, as a developmental biologist, where I'm also trained, uh, the opinions are a little bit more diverse on where life begins. Uh, and it's more centered around uh, when does an individual uh, life begin? And so for some developmental biologists, they think about this as when an embryo uh, is no longer capable of splitting into two different individuals. And so that occurs somewhere around 14 days after fertilization. So, um, so that's a different point of view of when uh, an individual person might begin. Yeah, maybe say a bit more about the, the kind of 14-day rule, which I've heard about. Um, what, what exactly is happening there? Can you go further into it? Yeah, I'm happy to. So, so the 14-day rule uh, originated uh, from discussions that were occurring in the United Kingdom. This was around the time uh, that IVF was first being considered as a possibility, as a treatment uh, for um, couples with, that are suffering from infertility. And so the 14-day rule, in a way, is a compromise that was uh, developed by bioethicists and uh, developmental biologists and embryologists and physicians. And the 14-day rule is essentially the last time that an embryo uh, can um, split, and so split into two different um, individual embryos. So that's how the 14-day rule was, was first um, established. Interesting. So are, are there any other kind of unique scientific positions on this? You said that a different scientist might look at this in different ways. Um, do any other ones come to mind that we should know about? Yeah, so um, so as we're learning more as uh, scientists about the earliest events in, uh, in human embryo development, there's this really interesting uh, molecular process called the maternal to zygotic transition. <laughs> I know that's a lot of science words, uh, but what this is, is when an egg is fertilized by a sperm, uh, the, the egg has a very particular molecular makeup that's responsible for, um, for the, the biology of an egg. The DNA has to be rewired so that instead of it being responsible for being an egg, it has to then become an embryo. Mm. And in humans, that rewiring, that maternal to zygotic transition, uh, which is when the RNA that's made from DNA starts making um, uh, the RNA molecules for embryo development, that occurs at, at the eight cell stage of embryo development. So that's about 72 hours after fertilization occurs. So there is some discussion about um, about whether perhaps eight days after uh, eight, the eight cell stage or seventy two hours after fertilization uh, could be another indicator uh, for when an individual um, uh, an individual forms. Mm. And then we think of um, aspects of being a human that uh, I don't know, or maybe just more of the way we think of ourselves mythologically or biologically, like a, like a heartbeat, right? Or a nervous system or um, the beginning of a brainstem or thought. Do we know about kind of when these aspects of kind of personhood come online and the importance of those in our idea of, of life? Yeah, so, um, so, a pers so personhood is actually not a scientific term. Yeah. And, and which I think is really fascinating, and perhaps that's getting lost in the discussions that we're having today, that personhood uh, uh, is a philosophical term, and it's utilized philosophically and legally. But as a scientist, the way we think about an individual uh, is, the, is based upon um, an individual in life, is based upon uh, measurable things like, for example, um, uh, chemical reactions or a physiological process or growth. Uh, and that's what defines something that's alive from something that is not alive. Mm. So it defines like a plant is alive and a rock is not alive uh, because there's certain measurable features that, um, that measure life. Just thinking that, you know, science inevitably will continue to evolve and there will be new technologies that come online that help us understand these questions. Do you think that our understanding of life will continue to change or, or you feel that we're at a fairly certain place right now? 
I think science always changes, and I'll give you a great example of this. In the 17th century, uh, it was thought that a fully formed human was found within the head of a sperm. This was the spermous theory of when life began. And so now, today, I don't think anyone believes there's a fully formed human found in the head of the sperm. In fact, we know that's not the case because we have scientific instruments uh, where we can look inside of the head of a sperm. And so where we are today in science, our knowledge is based upon uh, the outcome of the experiments we do with the technology that we have. I'm certain that in another decade, two decades, uh, or further, our thinking about um, uh, when life begins will continue to evolve. Yeah, and I mean, I think that these questions become particularly uh, sensitive and growing and uh, as we are able to create life in new ways. I mean, as IVF treatments continue to expand and that perhaps will be a time where humans can be made outside of human bodies, right? I mean, these are, these are questions that I think we're going to have to continuously be confronted by. I agree. And and when we think about the amount of uh, individuals and couples who are accessing in vitro fertilization in order to have a family, uh, when they are looking at their at their embryos, the pictures that their embryologists will give them when they're looking at their embryos, the question they're asking is, are those embryos alive? These are these are very real questions that um, mm. that people are starting to grapple with. Are embryos alive? And the answer to that is yes, embryos are absolutely alive. They are the cells uh, that are made up of an embryo are living cells. Uh, the question is, are embryos a person? That's a very different type of mm -hmm. question. Uh, and it goes back to that person and personhood is it's not a scientific concept. That's a philosophical concept. Mm. And it seems though that the way it happens now, and I'm, I'm not a parent and I have not been through IVF treatments, but that the attachment seems to begin at around those times, I don't know, perhaps of when there's a heartbeat or more sustained growth. Uh, I, I don't hear as much of mourning of, you know, an embryo, I guess, but you could tell me if I'm wrong here. Yeah, I think everyone's journey is very different as they're going through fertility treatments uh, or um, through pregnancy. So, um, uh, but certainly going back to development is a continuum. So um, development, going back to the geneticist point of view, is that um, uh, fertilization is the beginning of a new life when uh, in humans there is an entity that has 46 chromosomes and it is just a ball of cells and all of those cells are alive. Uh, but that embryo can't survive um, any further than around six to 10 days unless that embryo uh, is transferred into a uterus. And so it's then that in the uterus, which establishes a pregnancy, that the embryo can then develop and form. And then over this developmental continuum, the embryo gets more complex and closer and closer to being able to survive on its own. And so now uh, we appreciate that, um, that, that, uh, that, that fetuses can survive outside of the uterus after about 24 to 26 weeks okay. after fertilization. Hmm. I now want to bring in Samira Mehta, Associate Professor in the Department of Women and Gender Studies and Director of the Program in Jewish Studies at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. I'm really delighted to be here and be in conversation with you both. So we heard a little bit about the scientific perspective, and I know that you look at this from a different lens, one that, that surveys the different spiritual and religious landscapes. And when I just pose the question to you of, of what do we know about where life begins in terms of these various perspectives out there, how, how do you begin to answer this question? You know, I really liked how Professor Clark said that the question of when personhood begins is a philosophical question. And it's a question that different religious traditions have grappled with. And I think the first and most important thing to understand is there isn't a single religious answer to that question. Um, different religious traditions, that can mean Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, indigenous traditions, can all all have different answers to that question, mm. but also within a given tradition. So Christianity contains Catholicism, Catholicism Protestantism, 
um, the Orthodox traditions. And each of those kind of groups may have a different answer. And as we know within Protestantism, there are that's a, a category that includes Southern Baptists, mm. but also the United Church of Christ, right? There's a broad array of of responses and answers in in the Protestant branch of Christianity, but also that there can be differences between the official teachings of a religious tradition and how the people who are sometimes faithful members of that tradition and sometimes mm. sort of people who are no longer kind of adherents but are raised in and with and formed by that tradition might answer the question. Mm. So there is no one clear religious answer to that question. And I'm happy to talk about how those different traditions see the question and then also what people do with those answers. Mm -hmm. The subsect of Christianity that seems to come up the most here is Catholicism, right? I mean, this is where the voice has been particularly vocal on these issues. Maybe you can say, just spend a minute there, say, how did that perspective become so important in this conversation, and how is that position defined? So from a Catholic standpoint, the really key question is the question of ensoulment. When does the soul... Mm enter the body and the answer for catholics is or for the catholic church and for kind of catholic tradition is that ensoulment happens at the moment of conception the moment when the egg meets the sperm this is an idea that predates much of the scientific knowledge that professor clark is talking about right um and and from that moment in catholic thought the embryo and then the developing fetus is understood to be a a person with a soul and that's why the catholic church opposes abortion um you know how it became such an important voice is is really a complicated question that ties to its alliance to conservative protestant groups mm. in the united states um it ties into conversations about birth control as birth control technology developed through the course of the 20th century. Um, but really what you see, in some ways it's a numbers game. Catholics are, um, there are sort of more Protestants in the United States than Catholics, but there are more Catholics than any given kind of Protestant. Mm. And so that's part of what's going on. Um, and in addition, an alliance forms, and actually a somewhat surprising alliance from a historical standpoint, between, for instance, the Catholic Church and the Southern Baptist Convention on issues of, on a range of issues, but one of which is the issue of abortion. Yeah. And, and so that's kind of the, where the rise to prominence comes from. Well, you know, it's interesting to me that this is probably a a conversation or a philosophical question that's been around for a long time, even though I think of it as somewhat of a modern one, right? Because I, I sense that maybe some level of abortion was available for a long, long time, but but it seems to be, you know, one that is so commonly discussed now. But maybe I'll take a step back and say, was this always a philosophical conversation? Were these always big questions that were being asked within faith traditions? So yes and no. In sort of the history of the United States, you can see um, evidence of abortion occurring and you can see um, sort of mechanisms for both contraception and abortion advertised using somewhat veiled language, but you can see, um, you can see these advertisements in like newspapers throughout sort of the history of the, of the young republic. Um, Scholars sort of postulate that the reason that there isn't clear reference to abortion in much early law in the United States is because it was both kind of taken for granted and because it was sort of the domain of women that it wasn't, it kind of fell below the radar of law. Yeah. It was both not considered important because it was women's business and it wasn't controversial. When you really see that changing is with the professionalization of medicine, with male 
talk, doctors with medical degrees replacing sort of midwives and wise women and healers and people like that who were providing the majority of obstetric and gynecological care, but also like lots of other kinds of home remedies. Hmm. And, you know, that process leads to a kind of consolidation of control of treatment and um, a shift in how things like abortion are understood. They really don't become controversial until that kind of shift and moment mm. in medical history. Yeah. Well, it's as if, and tell me if I have this right or I'm on the right track here, though, that with the development of, of modern medicine, which was in the hands of, of, of men that were credentialed, and um, my guess is that faith traditions had to do their own bit of kind of soul searching here and looking at how they felt about certain positions that may not have been so prevalent in more ancient times, right? I mean, they had to come up with answers on very difficult positions like this. I think it's really worth thinking about the example of Judaism. So the foundational Jewish texts do make a case for when personhood begins, and the majority of them place the status of personhood at the moment of birth, um, which is usually interpreted to mean the moment at which the head is out of the birth canal. Mm. Um, so the Hebrew Bible, um, which is what Jews call, what many Christians call the Old Testament, um, doesn't actually mention abortion, but it does talk about miscarriage. So in Exodus um, chapter 21, verses 22 through 25, there's a description of a miscarriage in which men are fighting and a pregnant woman is injured. And if the woman miscarries but does not suffer additional injury, the penalty for those fighting men is a fine, which is not the penalty for either murder or manslaughter, right? It's a lesser penalty than would be imposed. Mm. And so when rabbinic sources, so the Hebrew Bible is the Bible, rabbinic sources are later interpretations of the Hebrew Bible. So those rabbinic sources take that to mean that a fetus has a different status than a person, right? If that miscarriage occurs during pregnancy, that's really different than what would happen if a small child had been killed. Mm. Um, and so that is kind of the way that that piece is, is approached. Another authoritative rabbinic work, which is called the Mishnah, um, discusses the question of a woman in danger of death in childbirth. And the Mishnah says that if a woman is at risk of dying in childbirth, the fetus must be destroyed in order to save her. So the idea there is that the laboring woman is alive and the fetus, well, it is potential life, which Judaism values, is not alive. And you must value life over potential life. Mm. Um, and that gets interpreted to mean that kind of the moment of personhood is birth. And in that text, it says again, once the head has emerged from the birth canal, the fetus becomes human life. Um, mm. That is the point in which Jewish law says, okay, now you have two people, you have a mother and you have a child and you must work to save them both. Mm -hmm. Up until that moment, though, it's the mother's life as the living person that has status. Are there any final kind of perspectives in different spiritual traditions that, that you think are, are, are something we should know about, maybe from the Muslim tradition or the Hindu tradition? I mean, what do some of these other faiths think about this question of when life begins? And the question of when life begins is less relevant in traditions like Hinduism and Buddhism that think in terms of reincarnation. Um, life in those is sort of never ending, right? It doesn't begin with conception or birth and it doesn't end with death. It's a cycle that doesn't have a clear beginning and a clear end. And so in those traditions, the conversations just look very different, right? Mm -hmm. There are Hindu perspectives that will say um, that, you know, abortion is never okay because life is always there and always present. 
Um, but the sort of lived reality is that abortion is not at all uncommon in India, um, which is a majority Hindu place, right? I can tell you that my own grandmother, who was Hindu, had at least two abortions. Um, that at least that my father knew of um, as her as her son. Um, and so again, it's not uncommon there. In Buddhism, again, there is there's sort of a way of incorporating miscarried and aborted fetuses into ritual practice. And the very creation of a ritual that includes abortion along with miscarriage says that, well, the question of when life begins is maybe not relevant or is not quite the same as it is in the Abrahamic traditions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, that doesn't automatically result in sort of a rejection of abortion. In a Buddhist view, the goal is to minimize suffering. And sometimes the way to do that is through abortion and then through sort of ritual mitigation of the suffering caused by the abortion, right? It becomes the lesser of the paths of suffering. Hmm. So again, it's this immense diversity yeah. that I think is really important. Yeah. I want to bring in Professor Clark here again from UCLA. And I, I'd love for you if, if there was something in there that you heard from Professor Meta that jumped out to you. What What are your thoughts kind of sitting back as a scientist listening to this aspect of the conversation? This has been a really fascinating conversation. And what I heard um, d- during the conversation was a lot of discussion around pregnancy. And pregnancy is very different to fertilization. And so pregnancy is when the embryo implants into the wall of a uterus. And so that occurs anywhere from about six days after fertilization to um, to perhaps as much as 12 days after fertilization, this implantation process will finish. And so pregnancy is the implantation of an embryo into a uterus that's what establishes the pregnancy. And then from there, the embryo will start to develop. And so um, so this period before pregnancy, uh, which is uh, fertilization and the early stages of embryo development, scientists don't consider that as being pregnant. Uh, so I think this is actually really interesting with the religious point of views where, where, um, where life begins at fertilization uh, in the Catholic point of view. Uh, but as a scientist, we acknowledge that um, that an egg fertilizes a sperm to form a new individual at fertilization. Uh, but pregnancy, that's very clear to a biologist. A pregnancy um, it doesn't occur until that embryo implants into the uterine wall. So, so I think that's what I found that a very interesting part of the conversation. And I think that it becomes very important, right, to think about some religious traditions adapt their sort of core understanding when presented with scientific knowledge. Other traditions do not adapt their sort of core understandings when presented with scientific knowledge. And some sort of um, do something in between, right? They like, they sort of, they stick to the same set of principles, but phrase, phrase their sort of outcomes in different ways. Well, Dr. Clark, I mean, um, how does this sit with you, though, kind of personally? I mean, outside of how you interpret mm-hmm. genetic information, uh, certainly you're you're also just a, a, a breathing person in this world that has ideas and which to live. And I, how do you how do you sit with this stuff when you make sense of you know uh, life and personhood and and faith systems? Are you swayed in any personal direction here? Yeah, I think it's interesting that scientists uh, often also um, practice religion as well. And so as a scientist, uh, in some cases, scientists need to reconcile the part of their life where they're a scientist and a geneticist or a developmental biologist or an evolutionary biologist um, with the religious side of their life. Uh, um, And sometimes those um, two aspects don't always meet in the middle very clearly. So 
so definitely I'm a spiritual person and so um, so that is definitely brought to the table as I am thinking about my science but the one thing we teach our students is one of the hardest things that you are going to be asked to do as a scientist is to recognize where your um, biases are and where your experiences are and be very cognizant of them as you're interpreting your science. So um, so you're right, scientists are people too and that we have different opinions based upon our experiences and sometimes and in many cases that's actually our religious experience and beliefs as well. And uh, Professor Meta, how do you think we have kind of these full ranging conversations that bring in both different faith perspectives and scientific perspectives in what feels like a constantly charged debate in which maybe there isn't much listening, but there's a lot of opinions. You know, I think it's really important to remember um, that religious organizations and authorities do not always speak for religious people. Sometimes they do, but we know, for instance, that not the vast majority, but the majority of American Catholics believe that abortion should be legal at least some of the time. Um, we know that of the women in the United States who have abortions, one in four are Catholic. Um, we know that those people sometimes care very deeply about their church, but don't share the views of what in the case of the Catholic Church in particular is a very male hierarchy. Um, and so to remember that, and I use the Catholics as an example because it's the starkest example in some ways, but to remember that there is a broad diversity of what it means to be religious. Um, and to really try to listen very carefully to people's experiences, but also to think about what is necessary to create a kind of world that we want to live into, right? In order for women to have true autonomy, what sorts of rights do they need? How do you think about sort of consistency? How do you think about exceptions? How do you think about the complexity of human life? It's been a pleasure to be joined by Professor Amanda Clark, Professor of Molecular Cell and Developmental Biology at UCLA. Dr. Clark, thank you for the time. Thank you. It's been fun. And I've been also chatting with Professor Samira Mehta at the University of Colorado Boulder. Thank you so much for the time as well. We appreciate it. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Still to come, could non-living things be entitled to personhood? We'll get the philosophical perspective on why artificial intelligence may shift the debate. We'd love also to get your perspective on when life begins and personhood. Do any of the concepts or frameworks we've discussed resonate with you? You can find a link to the Facebook group at kcrw.com slash life examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. We'll be back with part two after the short break. Introducing the KCRW donation car designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. As well as having spiritual and moral implications, questions surrounding life and personhood also have ethical, societal, and cultural implications. Who decides what person counts or which person counts more? How do these decisions impact how we live together as a society? Nancy Jecker studies moral philosophy and says the way that we think about personhood has both practical and ethical implications, both at the beginning and end of life. Nancy Jecker is adjunct professor of bioethics and humanities at the University of Washington, and she joins me now. Welcome. Thank you very much. You know, I'm so interested in coming at this from a philosophical angle because I think that's important here. There's so many big questions. And, and for me, this really comes down to this question of, you know, what makes a being a person or what is personhood? I mean, there, to me, th these are these essential questions about what makes a human a human. So let me just hand it over to you. Where, where do we begin this conversation? Well, when philosophers talk about the concept of a person or personhood, they're referring to the intuitive idea that um, 
some beings have an exceptionally high moral status, not just some moral value, but really superlative moral worth. So we say if someone's a person, they deserve to be treated in certain ways, regarded with respect, treated fairly, not interfered with, or maybe given aid under certain conditions. So that's the intuitive idea, someone that has full and exceptional moral status. Mm. And it's interesting because in, in a sense, that's what this debate is getting to, which is at what point do we define someone as a person and at what point are they entitled to certain rights and protections, right? That's the tricky questions. Philosophers often start by assuming that a normal so-called adult human being is a clear case. Of course, we must be persons. And they disagree a lot when it comes to saying why. And the questions you ask, do all humans count? Is a fetus a person? Is a patient in a persistent vegetative state a person? Right. What about my dog or another intelligent animal, say a rat or a crow? And there have been recent debates about whether certain kinds of artificially intelligent robots qualify as persons. Mm. So there is no consensus about these cases. However, I think it's fair to say that the most prominent view in the West today is that personhood requires certain mental states, certain mental capacities, like rationality, consciousness, the capacity to suffer, perhaps self-awareness. And now in other parts of the world, I should mention, such as sub-Saharan Africa, the idea of personhood looks entirely different. It doesn't refer to any intrinsic quality of human beings or other beings, but to relational qualities that are sort of um, not just inside ourselves. Mm. So qualities like being incorporated in a community or being pro-social and contributing to a community. That's that's really interesting. I mean, in the conversations I've also had with folks that are more in indigenous communities, you know, whether in South America or wherever, I mean, their whole worldview is so non-dualistic like ours, in which, you know, I think we come from the sense there's the humans and then there's everything else outside of us, which maybe you can explain the roots of that, but rather that there is the sense that everything is integrated into a, a, a oneness or a connection, whether it be trees or soil or anything else. So it really depends on the framework in which we understand the world around us. I think that's right. You know, in the West, our views about personhood and from a philosophical standpoint, underwent a sea change in the Middle Ages when, um, you know, with the rise of Christianity. And uh, philosophers since then working in a Judeo-Christian society and culture, that sort of shapes the way we approach the question. You mentioned dualism, this idea that we have a soul and mind and body are different. Other societies that don't have that heritage have a very different way of looking at the world and looking at moral worth and moral standing within it. Mm. And if we go back even further than, say, you know, what we understand about Christian thinking, I mean, I, I just think of very uh, basic and well-known philosophical statements, I think, therefore I am, right? So that, that seems to play into this as well. It does. The, the, the statement, I think, therefore I am, cogito ergo sum, traces to Descartes, mm. who was part of, uh, you know, Kantian philosophy during that time, you know, that, that what the ideas that were swirling around around the, around the time Descartes was writing in the 18th century were, it was, this was the age of reason. And so during that time, folks like Descartes and folks like uh, Immanuel Kant um, focused on rationality and thinking. And, and Kant, uh, a little bit different than Descartes, focused on the capacity to reason about morality. So Kant thought that a being of any species could in principle do that. It wasn't just human beings. And he, it's fun to read him because he sometimes speculates that there were probably beings on other planets and they might be persons too. <laughs> Interesting. So he was already thinking about, you know, extraterrestrial life as humans, something like that. Exactly. Wow. That is interesting, this question of morality to me, right? That that seems, I mean, it's, it's fascinating, but it seems, um, I don't know, kind of uh, an add-on or something beyond just what a, what a person is. Maybe you can go into that a little bit more. Well, how we think of a person philosophically has all kinds of practical ethical implications. So for example, at the end of life, 
if we view a person as someone who has the capacity to reason about morality, like Kant thought, um, that has implications for whether a fetus is a person or whether um, you know, an individual who is permanently unconscious is a, is a person. So there are practical implications both at the beginning and the end of life and sometimes in the middle um, about how we ought to treat people in medical settings and in other settings, how we ought to regard them. And there are debates about that. So it, the, the cases and the philosophy sort of go back and forth and shape, influence each other. Mm. And I think what's fascinating about this is how the end of life really might inform a lot of how we could potentially view the beginning of life. For example, you know, we make big decisions if someone's in a vegetative state or, you know, if someone's in a coma or there's a lack of any type of brain activity. So what do we know about that in terms of how it factors into our concept of, you know, what a life is or what personhood is? It absolutely factors in. So when someone ceases to be a person depends a lot on what qualities we hold are necessary and sufficient for personhood. Mm. That determines our view of death and the criteria we think it should be used in practical situations to declare an individual dead, a person dead. In the US, we generally use whole brain criteria to determine death. And they tell us that a person is dead if all their brain activity is stopped. Mm. But there's a lot of debate about this. Some philosophers and others have argued that we should replace this criteria with a different set of criteria. We should call a person dead if their so-called higher brain activity has ended, so their cerebral cortex. So again, practical implications are huge. Um, if we uh, stick with the whole brain definition, then we'd say that someone who is in, in a persistent vegetative state um, is not dead because they have brainstem activity. Mm. Um, so we can't do things like procure their organs. But if we go with the higher brain definition, um, we get a different result. Mm. It tells us that someone without any higher brain activity, so someone in a persistent vegetative state, is not a person even if we can keep them biologically alive through things like artificial nutrition, hydration, other medical care, they're not a person. They're, they're a human being, of course, but not a person. And those two con concepts might part company. Mm. And then if, if we take whether it's a, a lower or a higher brain argument here, and you apply it, let's say, to a fetus or you know this cluster of cells in early, early human life, they don't have, from what we understand, lower or higher brain activity yet, right? That's right. So most um, most people would say that sometime around the end of the second semester, uh, a pregnant second trimester rather of pregnancy, the fetus begins to develop um, the cerebral cortex and the mm. very beginnings of consciousness arise. So if we take a Western predominant Western view of personhood and require consciousness um, or higher brain activity at the end of life, and we apply that at the beginning of life, then we don't have a person, we might have something with moral value, but not full-fledged superlative moral worth, which is what personhood denotes, um, sometimes referred to as a right to life, although that language is controversial. Mm. Just staying with this this argument though, I, I mean, to me, it's fascinating just following these threads. If we use then that level of brain activity, higher brain activity as, as the argument for personhood, when, when technically would we give that to an individual? Well, it's very controversial because we have um, human beings with intellectual impairment and, and, and advocates for them in the disability rights community that want to say that what matters a lot more is the ability to, to relate to other human beings, um, the capacity to for for things like you know friendship or love, um, being part of the community, and that matters more than whether one can you know do mathematics or have a plan of life or mm. um, you know engage in higher order, order intellectual thinking. 
So that's where one starts to, you know, think outside the West in terms of some of these other standpoints and perspectives. Mm. And but even on a, you know, a more basic level, when at what point in the development of of the person of the fetus of the young child do we bestow that level of thinking, even if it's the question of higher brain function? Well, if you think it requires, say, a sense of self, a sense of oneself existing over time, mm. then a newborn baby wouldn't qualify as a person, right? Maybe sometime around, I don't know enough about human development, but probably toddlerhood. Yeah. So that's a pretty strict criteria. And mm -hmm. some people want to say, well, it's just the capacity to suffer. It's just consciousness. And a newborn baby has that. Mm. Consciousness is really fascinating too, right? Because not only do humans have consciousness, but the dog sitting next to me has consciousness too. So do animals. So do so many other creatures around who we do not bestow this idea of personhood to or any really sense of given rights. So even there, the argument I'm sure could be parsed. Exactly. It has all kinds of implications beyond human beings. So you utilitarian philosophers in particular starting with Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill in the 19th century, don't put as much weight on rationality. They argue that what makes someone morally considerable is not whether they can reason, but whether they can suffer. And my dog or other um, non-human animals can certainly are conscious and have the capacity to suffer. So they count, they count on those views. Mm, interesting. I wonder if we kind of bring this into the the political realm, and I know this is a very sensitive one, particularly, you know, for women who have been pregnant, have decided to keep a child or not. Right to life can also be, whose life are we talking about here? Is it the life of a mother? Is it the life of a fetus? What, who has the greater moral good here? I, I wonder if you could weigh in on this a little bit from a philosophical standpoint. Well, from a philosophical perspective, the concept of personhood is going to matter a lot to how we think about the abortion debate. Mm. It's not going to be decisive, however, I would caution, because as you mentioned, there's not just one person there. If the fetus is a person, there's a second person, which is the pregnant individual. Mm. And the pregnant person's rights might conflict directly with the rights of you know, the unborn human being. So it's not like we can look at this question in isolation from the context that this is a, an a, 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 li a living being that's inside another. Mm. And that makes a lot of difference in terms of, you know, how do we respect the, the personhood of the pregnant individual? Mm. Very controversial. Part of me wonders that, you know, through technology and access to abortion, this has become, you know, a, a much more present issue in in our in our culture and i wonder if there were other philosophers that weighed in on this if this question was one of importance necessarily uh, if the conversation was as alive in earlier kind of philosophic times with these types of questions a lot of the debates about personhood actually began in the more applied and practical realm and it was over topics such as um, terminating a pregnancy where it got its start. And that colored a lot of the discussion that followed in contemporary thinking. Even though the concept goes way back, the more recent contemporary debates um, really um, were ignited during the time when um, this, this, this option became available. Um, and so, yes, I think they influence each other very much. Something you said a little bit earlier also really stuck with me, which is this question of, you know, at some point, could AI be given personhood status? Uh, at what point do these incredible machines being built around us deserve rights? Um, what, what would you add to that conversation? Because something tells me this is only going to be, become more present in the world we live. I think it's definitely going to become more present in the world in which we live. So increasingly, the language of a right to life, which used to be used interchangeably with personhood, has grown out of favor, partly because some AI researchers want to open the door to personhood for non-living things. And interestingly, that dovetails with what some environmental philosophers have said about um, nature, non-living nature. Um, so soils and um, 
you know, uh, ecosystems um, that we're, we're the, we're, you're talking about things that are not alive necessarily, but we need to take care of our planet. It's mm. the only one we have, and we have to uh, recognize its moral standing and worth. So um, AI researchers who defend personhood for certain kinds of artificially intelligent machines often focus in on the relationship between the human being and the machine hmm. and say that that relationship, say a social, social robot now or in the future, um, might be able to form companionship and friendship um, and even intimacy with a human being and that that might become valuable for its own sake. And as part of that valuable relationship, the robot's moral status might be elevated. Hmm. Interesting. And for me, I just keep thinking about this concept that it's, you know, this might be obvious, but it's we as humans that are deciding all of this. We're the ones coming up with these changing arguments in terms of how they relate to us and we understand ourselves. We're the ones doling out status and rights and protections. You know what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying. You're, that's absolutely right. So the morality we're talking about and the conception of personhood we're debating is from a human standpoint. And we sort of can't argue about it, I think, from any other standpoint. Mm. We can't say what a Martian or a, um, would say about moral status. Maybe they'd say something very different. Or if intelligent non-human earthlings um, had a morality, it might look really different. Mm -hmm. So we can't get outside of our own head. And that's what we have to work with. And that certainly the morality we form um, starts there. And that's, you know, underlies the fact that when we think about personhood, we begin with ourselves and we think, I'm, of course, a person. Right. So what makes me a person? Why am I a person? So that sort of shapes all the conversation and debate that follows. And then in some senses, I, I, I feel like we grant different levels of status to the things that resemble us or that we tend to have close relationships to, right? I mean, like, the rights of dogs are quite a bit higher than the rights of rodents or rats that are being killed in labs all the time. And or we seem to love big majestic creatures like lions versus smaller things that are less significant in our eyes. So I don't I'm just kind of fascinated by that idea of of, you know, it's as if we're looking for some versions of ourselves or some convenience in the world around us. And then we elevate that. I think we do. Um, some philosophers have critiqued that. For example, some utilitarian philosophers like Peter Singer have argued that it's speciesist to take that approach mm. and that all that matters is the capacity to suffer. It doesn't matter what kind of being it is. Mm. Yeah. And when you mentioned an environmental standpoint, you know, I, I couldn't help thinking of, you know, incredible groves, say, of, of aspen trees that are interlinked for miles and miles below the ground or these incredible uh, just in organisms that folks are trying to protect and trying to, you know, ascribe a certain levels of status to, you know, trees, things like that. Well, I think our ability to relate um, and to put ourselves in the shoes, so to speak, um, in the in the standpoint uh, of something that's so different from us, that's non-human, is very limited. And I think our morality reflects that fact. We mm -hmm. can't really empathize with um, being a rat or being a crow, although they're very intelligent animals. And we can't really understand what it's like to be another living thing. We don't live a dolphin's life or the mm -hmm. life of an eagle. So it, it certainly colors and shapes our morality. The morality we have, like it or not, is really comes from our standpoint, and we can't get out of it. Yeah. My guest has been Nancy Jecker, Professor of Bioethics and Humanities at the University of Washington. This has been very, really interesting. I, I, it, my mind is just kind of full of questions and, and controversies and ideas. So thank you for bringing this to us. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jonathan. All right, that's it for this week. The producer of our show is Andrea Brody. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion of Life Examined on Life and Personhood. Please share your thoughts and let's keep the conversation going on our Facebook group, where we're nearly at a thousand members, which is a big goal for our show. So take a moment and join our growing community. You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.